Amen. Down, buckle up. We're going for a ride this morning. We're going to be in the Gospels. So if you turn to the beginning of the New Testament, we'll be in several of those. We'll start in Luke chapter 1, but just uh, get your finger there and get ready. Um, This morning, we're going to start about just talking about some nicknames. Some people have the craziest nicknames, right? Others are just funny. Let me share a few of those with you. I'm going to start with some basketball players. Charles Barkley, rather portly but excellent basketball player, was nicknamed the Round Mound of Rebound. You know, when he was at the University of Auburn, they actually had um, an event where if you stepped on a scale at the ticket window and weighed more than Barkley, you got in for free. I don't think they gave away many free tickets that night. Pete Maravich was nicknamed Pistol Pete because when he was in junior high and high school, he wasn't strong enough to shoot from here, so he shot from his hip like a gunslinger. Rick Mahorn and Jeff Ruland, uh, when they were teammates on the Washington Bullets, they were nicknamed McFilthy and McNasty because of the way they played the game. How about some football players? You probably remember this one, William Perry. He was nicknamed the Fridge because of his playing size. 6'2", 335 pounds. Uh, How about Jack Reynolds going back a generation or two? He was given the nickname Hacksaw. After a particularly galling defeat in college football, he grabbed a hacksaw and cut completely through his Jeep. All the way through. How about some baseball players? Mark the Bird Fidrich got his nickname because he looked like Big Bird on Sesame Street. And Mark Zepchinski, now I'm going to have to spell that for you because it isn't spelled anything like Zepchinski, sounds like it should be. R-Z-E-P-Z-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. His nickname was Scrabble. (laughs) Even people in ministry have nicknames. We talked about this guy several months ago. Barnabas was actually, his name was Joseph. But he was known as Barnabas because that means son of encouragement, and he was nicknamed that because of his personality. uh, A couple of the disciples, James and John, were known as the sons of thunder, also because of their personalities. Peter was known as the rock. That was long before wrestler and actor Dwayne Johnson was ever born. Charles Spurgeon was known as the prince of preachers. And my friend Donnie Heindel, a pastor from a church that I used to serve at, We called him Teflon Don because he could get away with anything. Give you an example. One year during vacation Bible school, he rode a motorcycle up the center aisle of the church and the elders didn't say a word. And then there's my friend Herb Gilroy, who is known as Herb Superb. Now, his wife Linda told me one time that that he gave himself that nickname. Well, let's talk about a particular man in the Bible who had a nickname. Now, while I called him particular, many people would call him peculiar. His given name was quite ordinary, John, and he was the cousin of Jesus. You might recognize one of his nicknames as John the Baptist. Some people have called him John the Baptizer. They were probably Methodists and didn't want to give credit to the Baptists. Now, how many of you have watched The Chosen? Show of hands? Quite a few of you. It's a video series as an exploration of the life of Jesus Christ 
through the perspective of those people that interacted with him. And so far, they've produced two seasons. They say they want to produce eight. It's actually quite good, and I would recommend that you watch those episodes. Now, the reason I bring up The Chosen is because John the Baptist is portrayed in several of those episodes, and Jesus' disciples nicknamed him Crazy John. Actually, Peter, one of the disciples, called him Crazy John and then realized that Jesus was listening. Now, that's a major oops, right? But Jesus just laughed and told Peter it was okay, and maybe he too thought that his cousin was just a little bit crazy. Well, today we're going to dig into Scripture and learn more about Crazy John or John the Baptist. Well, first of all, what are some things that are commonly known about John the Baptist? First of all, I already mentioned one. He and Jesus were cousins. John's father, Zacharias, was a priest, and his mother, Elizabeth, was the cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Both of John's parents were quite old, past the time when they should have been able to have children, and an angel told them that this previously childless couple would become pregnant. So now we're going to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Uh, you can do that in a, a regular traditional Bible, or if you have a device that has a Bible app on it, you can turn to that. If you don't have either of those, I encourage you to take the Bible out of the pew in front of you, and to make it easy on you, it's on page 803. We're going to read from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, and reading through verse 13. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at that hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. I think it would on all of us. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Foretelling a child's birth through an angel. That sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? Here's something that the two cousins had in common. Well, what else do we know about John the Baptist? Why would he be called Crazy John by some people? Oh, I don't know, maybe it was because of his fashion statement of wearing camel hair. You heard me right. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4 says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. I can almost picture him in front of his wardrobe thinking, Hmm, I wonder which belt matches camel hair. (laughs) Or maybe he was called Crazy John because he ate honey-coated locusts. Seriously, this is from the same verse. And his food was locust and wild honey. Or maybe because he chose to live in the desert. Go back a couple of verses to Matthew 3, 1. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. We're not talking about Las Vegas or Palm Springs here. The wilderness being described here was east of Jerusalem near the Jordan River. 
Very few plants grew there, and so therefore very few animals lived there. And the reason why few plants grew there is because the the soil is very chalky, and also there are lots of stones and rocks on top of it. Well, here's another reason he might have been called Crazy John. He called the most respected leaders of that day a brood of vipers. And he told these men that their religion was not going to save them from judgment. So let's go back to the Bible here in Matthew. Go back to the left just a little bit. Matthew chapter 3. If you're in your pew Bibles, that's page 758. Matthew 3, beginning at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptisms, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Remember, it was stony ground, right? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That doesn't seem like a very nice thing to say, does it? But it needed to be said, and John was not afraid to say it. Then there was the way that John spoke to the ruler of Judea, King Herod. More than once, John the Baptist had rebuked King Herod for divorcing his wife and marrying his niece, who had been married to his brother's wife. His brother was still living, so for several reasons, Herod's marriage to his niece was a violation of God's law. Now, I'm just going to give you some free advice this morning. If you want to live a long and healthy life, don't tell the king that he's a perverted sinner destined for hell. Now, moving away from the crazy John persona, what else do we know about John the Baptist? We know that the whole purpose of John's life was to point people to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. The people of Israel had not heard from God for quite a long time. Uh, It's been 400 years since the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, was written. And now it's 400 years later and John the Baptist appears. Now think about this. Israel, who is accustomed to hearing from prophets from angels and seen miracles, hasn't heard from God for 400 years. Then seemingly out of nowhere, but right on time according to God's schedule, a colorful character emerged, Crazy John, otherwise known as John the Baptist. So again, uh, staying in uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, still on page 758, It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was a radical, a revolutionary And everyone wanted to come out and see this rock star of a prophet. Mark chapter 1, 5 says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going to hear him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
Not only was John a prominent figure, he was super prominent. In fact, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus wrote far more about John the Baptist than he did about Jesus Christ. Yet John had a very simple job to do, which was to prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus. Did you know that Jesus called John the Baptist not only the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he also called him the greatest of the prophets? Jesus said in Luke 7, 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, why would Jesus say that John was the greatest of prophets? Because John alone was the direct herald and forerunner of the Messiah. His greatness was the direct result of his nearness to Jesus. Yet despite this great calling on his life, despite the incredible description that Jesus gave to him, calling John the greatest of the prophets, and despite his widespread popularity... John was very humble. John 3.30 tells us what John's life motto was. He said, he, speaking of Jesus, so Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. He understood exactly what his role was. His mission was to be a herald for the coming Messiah, to prepare people to meet Jesus and then get out of the way. In a way, the life and ministry of John the Baptist reminds me of a shooting star or a falling star. I went to the NASA website to learn just a little bit about these things and uh, found out that a shooting star is actually a meteor. Uh, it's, NASA says it's called a falling star or a shooting star, but it has nothing at all to do with the stars. These amazing streaks of light you can sometimes see in the night sky are caused by tiny bits of dust and rock called meteoroids falling into the Earth's atmosphere and burning up. The short-lived trail of light the burning meteoroid produces is called a meteor. A shooting star is so bright that it, can, that it can be clearly seen with the naked eye, but by the time we see them, they last only a short time. I think the life of John the Baptist burned bright but short. We've seen the bright part. What about this short part? Now we're going to go from Matthew to Mark, chapter 6, Mark 6, and begin at verse 17. That's on page 790 of your pew Bible. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, 
for what should I ask? And the mother said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. And then she added this part, on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Listen to these words that are written by author and pastor Chuck Swindoll. He says, some stories in the Bible are so heartbreaking that they almost make us weep. Others are so filled with adventure that we find ourselves transported to faraway places with strange-sounding names and places we will never see. And then there are stories filled with heroism and courage, tales that give us strength to go on as we see the faith of godly men and women triumph over evil. And then there are stories so shocking, shameless, and scandalous It's hard to believe they appear in the pages of God's inspired book. They read like lurid pieces of pulp fiction, things you'd see on the supermarket checkout stand, scenes that raw and vulgar just don't seem fit to be in the Bible. Then he continues, this segment of Mark's gospel is like that. With vivid storytelling, he transports us from our sanitized world of comfort and stability to a time when rulers did as they pleased. He rips us from our homes to places into a sleazy setting of pulsating music, filthy jokes, sensual dancing, too much alcohol, and too little moral restraint. In these verses, we must observe the shameful inner court of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great and Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Let me give a bit of background to the story of John's execution. Herod's first wife, not this woman that we're talking about here, but his first wife was the daughter of a rival king. Now, the woman that he stole had been the wife of his half-brother, Philip, who ruled the land to the north of Herod. So obviously, Herod is making a lot of enemies. He's made an enemy of his first father-in-law, a rival king. He's made an enemy of his brother who rules the land to the north of him. So he needed some friends. Therefore, he needed to keep Rome happy. And in order to do that, he had to keep peace in Galilee. Because what Rome desired above everything else in their conquered lands was peace. He had trouble doing that because he had such disdain for the Jewish law that the Galileans treasured. So even though Herod wanted to execute John, he couldn't bring himself to do it because the people of Galilee held John in such high regard. So John lived for two years in a dank, dark, dangerous prison. John was everything that Herod was not. John was a man of integrity. Herod didn't have the backbone to be a man of integrity. John lived his life in devotion to God. Herod didn't have the faintest idea of how to live his life devoted to God. But he kept John alive almost like a good luck charm because John was his last and only connection with anything good. 
The baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist was the high point of John's ministry. He was a herald for the coming Messiah, and now that that king had arrived and had proclaimed, there was no further need of a herald. And so John had this divine job to do, and it was done. His public ministry was brought violently to a close. In John 17, 4, we read that Jesus said to God the Father, I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. You see, even Jesus had work to do, a ministry that he had been given on his earthly life. And so did John the Baptist. His work and his life goal was given to him by God was to proclaim the coming Messiah, to make sure that everybody knew that Jesus was coming. He accomplished his life's purpose. And so here's a question for you and me. Have we accomplished our life's purpose? Well, I guess you'd have to know what that purpose is in order to go about accomplishing it and then to know if indeed you had. So what is the purpose of a Christ follower? Jesus was asked this very question by a Pharisee who was considered to be an expert in the law. In Matthew chapter 22, this is on page 777 of your Bibles, the Pew Bibles. So Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 37. Jesus answered that Pharisee, the expert of the law, by saying, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus gives us two basic commandments that summarize all of the laws that had been given in Scripture. The Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God and then with our relationship with people. One naturally flows out of the other. Without a a right relationship to God, it is impossible to have right relationships with people. The cause of the world's problems is that people need to be reconciled to God. We will never love our neighbor as ourselves if we do not first love God with all of our heart and soul and mind. All of our best efforts towards world peace will fail as long as people are living in rebellion against God. When you think about it, Jesus' answer was really a perfect response not only to that Pharisee of his day, but also to all the people who tried to measure a person's goodness by uh, saying how well we conform to a set of standards. Both the Pharisees of Christ's day and the people of today, we try to create this system of rules. If you follow them, you're good. Or maybe better said, if you follow them better than most people do, then you're good. Because let's admit it, we don't even follow our own rules perfectly. When we honestly consider Jesus' words, we need to understand just how impossible it is for us to live up to God's standards and how often we fail to do so. While we will never keep God's commandments or be righteous before him in our own efforts, Jesus did. When we've come to trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit resides in our life, and he is the one that gives us the power and enables us to live a life that pleases God and to be able to say at the end of our lives, 
I have glorified you on earth, accomplishing what the work you gave me to do. As Christians, we strive to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And as our hearts and minds are transformed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we are able to begin to love others as we love ourselves. Yet we still fail to do so, which again drives us back to the cross and reminds us of the salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. It is his righteousness made present in our lives by the Spirit of God, not any merit of our own. Now, what about those who have not yet come to this place in life? For those who have not committed themselves to following Jesus and rest upon his work on the cross, who are still trying to do this in their own power to please God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. People claim that is too narrow. People say that as long as you're sincere in your beliefs and you can follow any path that you want and it will get you to heaven. But is that really true? Let me give you an example. What if you got on a plane at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport and you were going to fly to Cancun? So the, the plane is taxiing down the runway, and you've put your seat upright, the tray table is stowed, you got your seatbelt on, and of course, of course, the most important thing is you've got your, your phone in airplane mode, right? And so the captain gets on the intercom, and he says, Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Flight 242, a direct flight to Cancun. Our cruising altitude will be 32,000 feet, and once we have reached cruising altitude, we'll be showing a movie. And then the captain follows this by saying, I'm not so sure about this whole fuel thing. The gauge is saying that we don't have enough fuel to reach Cancun, but I think we can make it because I'm feeling really good about this. Also, I'm not going to use any of our navigation systems or even use a map because I think that's too narrow-minded. You see, I believe that all flight paths lead to Mexico. And by the way, I'm very sincere about this. Well, what would you say? I'll tell you what I'd say. I'd say, get me off this plane because there's a psycho in the cockpit. We can laugh about this because it's just an illustration. But the most important journey of us will ever take is a journey to eternity. And you want to gamble about that journey? Jesus said, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few that find it. Going back to the illustration of flying, if I want to get to Cancun, I can't just go to Cleveland Hopkins and board any flight I want. I have to check in with my ticket, go through security, have the proper ID, and board the right plane. Well, God has made available to you the ticket to heaven. It was bought for you by Jesus on the cross of Calvary, but you have to receive that ticket. You have to believe in Jesus, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. First, you have to admit that you're a sinner, and that can be difficult for us to do. We struggle calling ourselves a sinner. Who, me, a sinner? I don't think so. But the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned. By the word, that word sin means to miss the mark or to cross a line that we should not have crossed. And we've all done that. We've all done things that we shouldn't have done, 
We've all entertained thoughts that we never should have allowed into our minds. Other people believe their salvation comes from keeping the Ten Commandments. But we've all broken those Ten Commandments. When people say they've not broken the Ten Commandments, what they're probably thinking is, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never robbed a bank. I never stole anybody's car. But what about the other commandments? We have made things more important in our lives than God. We have taken the Lord's name in vain. We have not honored our parents the way that we should. And we have taken things that are not ours, even if we think those things are not significant. And the Bible says in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. God does not grade on the curve. He does not line up all humanity from the beginning of time to the end and says, I'll take the top 50% who are better than the bottom 50%. The second thing you need to do is to recognize that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. He was not crucified against his will. He willingly gave his life for us. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. Third, you must repent of your sin. Now, repent's not a word that we use in everyday life. So what does it mean? To repent of your sins doesn't just mean that you're sorry, but that you turn away from your sins. You see, I could roll through a stop sign this afternoon and feel sorry for doing it, and then tomorrow I could just do the same thing all over again. Why? Because I don't feel that what I did was all that bad. But what if by running that stop sign, I hit a child who had run out into the street after their ball? Then I wouldn't just feel sorry for doing something that I probably should not have done. I would feel remorse. I would feel guilt. I would feel ashamed. And I hope that I would repent, that I would turn away from ever running a stop sign again. Why? Because I realized that what I did was reprehensible and because it has consequences. Fourth, you must receive Christ into your life. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to them who believe in his name. And Jesus also said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and open the door, I will open it to him, and I will come in and sup with him and he with me. But you have to open the door to Jesus. He will not force his way in. He will not kick down the door to get in. If you receive Jesus into your life, you can know with certainty that one day, you will be in heaven with all of your guilt left on the cross of Calvary. This is the choice that every person who has ever lived has to make. The answer must either be to accept the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, admitting that you cannot stand before God guiltless in your own power, or you are saying, no, thank you, Jesus. I've got this. I'm willing to stand before God on judgment day and take my chances. Because there is no third choice. If you don't say yes to Jesus, you are by default saying no to Jesus. Remember when I told you about comets? 
Let's consider a comet again. These incredibly swift heavenly bodies shoot across and through our solar system from time to time, and they're fantastic to see. Their vapor trails can be more than 10,000 miles long. But science tells us that if we were to capture and bottle a comet's 10,000-mile-long vapor trail, the amount of moisture in the bottle would take up less than one square inch. God can do something more amazing than that. He can take all of our sins and heartaches and place them in an area the size of a cross, and then he makes them disappear forever. Let me close by reading to you from Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all that you have done for us, that you have made a way for us to stand before you blameless. We also thank you that you've reminded us that it's not through the things that we do by trying to be good or to be better than other people. God, for those who have put their faith and trust in you already, I pray that you would remind them that they have a purpose on this life, just like John the Baptist did. And in many ways, our purpose is exactly the same, to proclaim the Messiah, to proclaim the Savior to the world. For far too often, God, we forget this, and we get so wrapped up in ourselves. God, please remind us of our purpose. Forgive us for the times when we have placed our own comfort above the eternal security of another person who is lost. And God, for those who have never made that commitment to you, God, we plead for them on on their behalf that they would come to know you even this day. Today could be the day of salvation for someone or some people in this room. So, Father, as we pray and close this together, I give the people of this room an opportunity to trust in you. If this is something that you have never done, would you pray along with me? God, I admit that I am a sinner. I have done things that are wrong. I have thought things that would make me ashamed if people knew them. I know that I cannot trust in my own goodness. And so I turn to you, Jesus, and to the work on the cross that you did for me. I can never thank you enough for loving me that much that you would die in my place. But Father, I pledge my life to you.
I ask you to make me a part of your family and to put the holiness of Jesus in my place. In Jesus' name, amen.